It's good to see you. Have you enjoyed the liquid sunshine today? I hope everybody had a good day. I did. I, uh, I said to my wife, you know, it was pouring down rain. It was supposed to rain all day. I said, this is a great opportunity. So I went and I filled a, a bucket full of soapy water. I got a rag. I put on a, a hooded rain jacket and I went out and washed my car. <laughs> and I didn't have to pay a nickel for it. And God rinsed it off. He's still rinsing it. And uh, it's been in that rinse cycle for quite a little while, and uh, I expect it to be waxed overnight somehow. I don't know <laughs> exactly how, but uh, I was glad for the rain today. It was, uh, it's a blessing. And uh, I hope you had a good day too. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 with me tonight. Matthew chapter 27. I sure have enjoyed being able to uh, develop this series. And... Um, it's a developing series for me because uh, God touched my heart with the messages, but each week I sit down and I pray and, and I work through these. And by God's grace, he fills out the skeleton that's in my mind, and I pray that it's a, it's a blessing to you. I grew up uh, not too far down the road here. Matter of fact, uh, when I was in high school, every day of high school, I drove down Black Rock Road. Uh, that's because I'm so old that 422, what I call the 422 bypass, you just call it 422, uh, but it wasn't there when I was a boy, and uh, we drive right down Black Rock Road to Lewis Road and over to Springford High School every day, and uh, I grew up just down the road, but uh, my mom and dad lived in a duplex. Uh, we lived, if you looked at it from the front door, we lived on the left side, and another family lived on the right side, and uh, beside our home, was an empty lot. Uh, I'm, I'm really thankful that that lot did not get sold until after I got out of high school because we played every sport there was to play uh, that we knew of over in that field. And uh, we played football and baseball and we even put up a, a basketball hoop on a tree over there and we'd play basketball. And uh, it, was, it was just great times growing up there. I, I really pity our kids today. Because uh, when our grandkids are outside, we want to know where they are 100% of the time. And when I was a kid, I left the house after breakfast, and I'd come back for lunch, and then I'd go back out until supper, and then I'd come back in, and I'd, I'd go back out till it was dark. And um, we just kind of grew up that way, and it was a great way to live, to be honest with you. But we played ball over in those fields, and, and uh, every now and then it would be my turn to pick up teams. And so uh, what I would typically do... <clears throat> when it was my turn, I would pick the worst player that I saw out there. Now, I did that for two reasons. First of all, I was hoping uh, that I would encourage the worst kid because he never got picked first. And I wanted the first kid to feel what it was like to be picked last every now and then. Now, the second thing I was hoping was that whoever was picking with me would follow my suit. If he didn't, the game was going to be a little bit lopsided. Are you with me? But can I tell you to this day, I don't remember one of the scores of the games we played. So it was worth it to me to, to pick some of the worst, worst guys. Tonight's story is similar to that. Uh, we come here last week. What was the question we looked at last week? Who can tell me? 
What is truth? Very good. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Again, I don't know that he was asking it with a sincere heart. We already covered that last week. We won't go back and, and redo that. He was doing it with more of our sarcastic, what is truth? Who, who are you to tell me what truth is? And tonight we're still with Pilate, believe it or not, and uh, we want to cover another question that he asks tonight. So if you have your Bibles in Matthew chapter 27, I want you to look at verses 15 to 17 with me. The Bible says in Matthew 27, 15, Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. Now before we go any further, let's just make it known that the governor was the one that came up with this. This was not a Jewish uh, tradition. It was something that Pilate, as the governor, had the right to do in order to probably, in order to gain some favor with the Jewish people who hated the Roman uh, Empire and the Roman rule over them. And so it was his custom that he would release a prisoner to them. You know where this is going. Look at verse 16. And it says, And, then, and, and they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. This is the first time that we're introduced here to Barabbas. He's called a notable prisoner. That doesn't mean he was the best prisoner they had. The word notable there has the idea of notorious, or it also has the idea of being a marked prisoner. It could mean that he was marked for the next crucifixion. Uh, as a matter of fact, I believe he probably should have been the third person crucified on this day, it was probably uh, the two thieves and himself that would have been crucified that day. He was notable. Uh, he had a mark on him. Uh, but it's my opinion that we're being introduced to him because he is the worst prisoner in the prison at that time. Let's keep going. In verse 17, it says, And therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? There's his question. Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? Uh, let's pray. Father, help us tonight. Uh, we want to hear from you. Uh, my words will not do much for us. Uh, they're not packed with power, and we need some power tonight. We need the Holy Spirit of God to guide our hearts into all truth. That means not just the truths we like to hear, but the truths that we need to hear. God, would you use your word in a powerful and impactful way? You've told us that your word is like a hammer. And God, I pray that it would crush our hardened hearts where we have kind of gotten callous and grown cold. I pray that your word would do its work in our lives tonight. And I pray that your spirit would have freedom and access to each and every one of us. Lord, I pray you do the spiritual work that only you can do. Uh, we cannot do it. We'd like to do it, but we cannot, but we trust you will. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to see here, I believe that uh, Pilate, in, his, uh, in the situation that he found himself, he found himself in an uh, enviable spot. He is the Roman governor, but he really doesn't like the Jews telling him what to do. Are you with me? It's kind of like a husband who knows his wife is right. But he really doesn't want to do it that way. Because if he does it and it ends up being good, then he's... Anyway, uh, we won't go there any further. I shouldn't have gotten into that at all, I don't think. But uh, 
Pilate, he was kind of in a, in a position where he was, he was being forced to do something that uh, in, in my heart, and I don't believe he wanted to do. So he, he realizes that Jews have pushed him into a corner and he either has to crucify Jesus or release Jesus. His own examination and Herod's examination have come up with the same results. We'll cover that in just a moment. But he, he does what every good politician does. He looks for a way out. And so he thinks about, he might have called over one of the guards and said, who's the worst prisoner we have? Who is the most notable prisoner we have? The one that's marked, the one that is notorious, the one who has uh, done the, the worst crime and, and everybody would hate. Who is that? His name's Barabbas. And so he turns to them and he asks the question that you see on the screen tonight, um, whom will ye that I release unto you? Would you like me to release Barabbas, the most notable notorious, crooked, rotten, dirty, scoundrel of a, of a prisoner that we have? Or would you like me to release Jesus the Christ? What an interesting question he asks. I think Barabbas in the mind of Pilate represented the worst person he had ever seen or known. And Jesus very possibly could represent the very best person he's ever known from his examination of him. By the way, I want to do a quick run-through with you. I don't, we don't have time to look at all these, but you can write them down and check me out later to make sure I'm telling you the truth. But uh, there are all four of the gospel writers record Pilate saying something to the effect that he has found no fault in Jesus. In Matthew 27, verse 23, and in Mark 15, 14, the same phrase is used, by Pilate, why, what evil hath he done? He can't find anything that he's done wrong. In Luke chapter 23, verse 4, he says, I find no fault in this man. A little later in that same chapter, verses 14 and 15, he said, Behold, I having examined him before you, listen to this, this is a pretty exhaustive statement. I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, he adds Herod in there, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. That's a pretty impressive statement. A little further in that same chapter, verse 22, Pilate said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. You get into the book of John, and John in chapter 18 says, uh, Pilate just makes a blanket statement, I find no fault in him. Verse chapter 19, verse 4, he says, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. And again, he says the same in verse 6 of the same chapter, I find no fault. Pilate probably, well, I know he could never have said that about anyone before. He may have said before, I don't know why you're, uh, I mean, this guy's done some wrong things, but I don't see why you're so upset with him. But his statements about Jesus Christ are really compelling. I find no fault in him, no fault. I don't know why you want to kill this man. What evil has he done? I'm, I'm my word, none of us could have stood there and been totally innocent. But he was looking at Jesus Christ as an innocent man, and, and Jesus, with his innocence, stood there in front of... And by the way, Pilate made these statements to the entire crowd that was there. That would include the Roman guards, that would include the centurions, that would include the, the Jewish leaders, that would include the curious people who've gotten close enough to his praetorium that they could overhear what was being stated. I find no fault 
in this man. I really think that when Pilate offered up Barabbas, again, he had chosen the worst of the prisoners in order to make a point. You're bringing me a man that I haven't found anything wrong with. I sent him to Herod. Herod found nothing wrong with him. He's brought him back here. I still don't find anything wrong with him. Uh, and I don't know. Let, let me give you this option. You can have Barabbas or you can have Jesus the Christ. Now, let me look at Barabbas with you for just a little bit. Turn to Mark chapter 15. I want you to see the description of, of uh, Barabbas. Uh, we don't get much of a description here in Matthew, but Mark lays it out pretty clearly for us what his crimes were. Look at uh, Mark chapter 15. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, now, after that, I'm sorry, verse 7, then there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him. Now, insurrection is, is the idea of rebellion. Uh, you realize that there were, there were a, a group of Jews who were beyond, well, we would call, uh, I don't know what we'd call them today, but militants. They were beyond just protesting. They were, uh, they were rebellious and, and, and to the extreme. Look what it says continuing. Uh, he was with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. So we see very clearly here, Barabbas not only was a rebel, which, you know, people rebel, but he had murdered someone in the rebellion. Uh, I believe, again, that probably he and the other two thieves that were on the cross, uh, we call them thieves, they probably had stolen some things as well, but I believe they would have been a part of the groups that, that, were, in, that were titled zealots. These were more than just enthusiasts. They were taking their, uh, their zeal to the ultimate point of killing uh, Romans. So he's, on, he's in prison because he has not only rebelled against Rome, but he has killed someone in the rebellion. And he, he's there. He's a part of that group that was, that was, uh, that was committed. And, and by the way, he's also called in John 1840, uh, not this man, but Barabbas. And it just says very clearly in John 1840, now Barabbas was a robber. So he's rebellious, he's a murderer, and he's a robber. Three strikes, and you're out. Somebody is awake. Thank you, Laura. You got that one right. Three strikes and you're out. Barabbas is, is out. I mean, he is literally, I think Barabbas is waiting inside that prison with those other two thieves on that, even, or on that evening that Jesus is on trial, and he's probably been told, that's your last meal because you're going to be taken to the, the cross and you're going to be crucified there. I believe Barabbas knew his days, literally, his days were no longer days. They were minutes. He was about to be crucified for his crimes. And as the thief that repented said, he was worthy of, those, of that punishment. Uh, they all three were worthy of that punishment. And yet, as he's there, Pilate brings his name up because he's the polar opposite of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is perfect, pure, holy, and righteous. By the way, can I just pause for a moment? Don't forget this. That's the sacrifice God requires for the payment for our sins. He requires a pure, perfect, holy, righteous sacrifice for our sins. And, and listen, I'd like to say this publicly. There's not a person in this room that fits that description. Jesus Christ fit it completely. 
He was the polar opposite of Barabbas. Now, I think that Pilate did his very best to set Jesus free. I really do. I think he was doing everything he could uh, to get Jesus to, to, to walk. Go back to Matthew chapter 19, um, 27 and look at verse 19 with me. So Matthew chapter 27, again, we saw the question uh, asked there in verse 17. It says in verse 18 of Matthew 27, For he knew, Pilate knew that for envy they had delivered Jesus. And when he had sat down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Now notice, and you know this, you've heard this before, but notice her wording. Have nothing to do with that what? Just man. Don't touch this guy. Pilate's wife says to him, This is a holy, pure righteous man don't touch him he's just everybody else you're looking at today is not just but he is just don't touch him for i have suffered she says this uh many things this day in a dream because of him she had nightmares she couldn't sleep she was awoke she was woken in the middle of the night just thinking about this just man being put to death unjustly and she says to Pilate, don't touch him. I really do believe that Pilate was doing everything he could to def deflect the punishment for Christ onto Barabbas. And by the way, that was the logical thing. Would you agree? Bar would you agree? Okay. Barabbas was the choice that made sense. Uh, that, but, but notice what happens. We know what, what takes place. In verse 21, the religious leaders asked for Barabbas now, I want to tell you, they must have really hated Jesus. Would you agree? They were just, they were releasing into public somebody who had uh, been a rebellious person, who had stolen things, and who had killed people. That's the kind of person I want for a neighbor. How about you? Not really. No. And, but they cried for him instead of Jesus. I would love to have had Jesus for a neighbor, uh, but I surely would not want to have wanted to have Barabbas as a neighbor. Uh, but he was the one that they called for. They certainly hated Jesus so much. Uh, and, and it's important for us to realize something tonight. The people, the same people who hated Jesus like that, Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates me, what's going to happen? Then the world's going to hate you. Hey, Christian, can I tell you, it should not surprise you that the world doesn't love us. It shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us that, that uh, the world just doesn't care for us. They think we're the fanatics. They think we're the crazy people because we want to stand up for unborn babies, because we want to stand for righteous causes, for, because we want to have freedom to study the Word of God and, 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 and publish the Word of God the way God tells us to. They think, but the world hated Jesus. We shouldn't expect any different, Amen. Uh, and uh, by the way, if they don't hate you, then you're probably not living for Christ, maybe like you should. Because the world will not like, uh, will not like us. I remember uh, a history class over at Springford High School. Um, it was 10th grade history. And uh, I, I, will, I will tell you right up front, I wasn't the greatest student in Springford uh, High School, ever, in any sense of the word. But I remember one history class we had, and, and uh, the teacher was going to talk about the topic of capital punishment. And he said, how many of you are for capital punishment? And I raised my hand, and uh, there weren't too many others that raised their hand. And he said, uh, Bracelin, why are you for capital punishment? And I, and I said, because it's in the Bible. 
Now, I have to be, I knew it was in there, but I didn't know where it was in there. I just, I just knew it was in there somewhere. You know what I'm saying? And so I, I, I and he said, uh, well, and all these kids started sneering and, and kind of mocking me and, and the teacher said, no, 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 no. We'll give you a chance. You, you show us where it is tomorrow in the Bible. I said, okay, not a problem. Man, I went home. I was on the phone with my pastor. <laughs> pastor, I'm in trouble. Is, is, is capital punishment in the Bible was my first question. <laughs> he told me it was, which I was really glad for because I'd already told him all it was. And then he told me the eye for the eye, tooth for tooth, the life's in the blood and all those good verses that, that I learned later. But... Uh, but I can remember the feeling of every, it seemed like everybody in my class was looking at me like, who is this nitwit that came into our class? But by the way, if you're going to stand for Christ, you have to be willing to stand for Christ. And so these, these uh, men were so, uh, so far gone that they chose Barabbas over Jesus. Now, let me get you to the heart of the message tonight. Because you know me, I've got to get to the heart. I've got to I got to go right for the heart. I'm sorry. It's just the way God made me. I'm not good at preaching fluff stuff. Can I be honest with you? We're a lot more, lot more like Barabbas than we are like Jesus. Isaiah said it in chapter 64 and verse 6 where he said, we're all as an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags, that's all we have to boast of. So about the, about the time you get feeling good about yourself, go back and read Isaiah 64, would you? Because God will put you right where you belong to be, humble, humiliated, and totally in need of the grace of God. Totally dependent on the mercy of God. That's where I live, and by the way, whether you know it or not, that's where you live too. We're like Barabbas. I'm a whole lot more like Barabbas than I am like Jesus. And so are you. So why do you think, I like to ask these kind of questions when I'm saying, why do you think God put this story about Barabbas in our Bibles? Well, I think there's a reason. Because I think God wanted us to know. And by the way, I've had people come up to me. You know, I love, I said this last, last Wednesday, I love prison ministry. I love going into prisons. And I'll, tell, I'll be very honest with you. I love going to prison because Everybody there knows they are in need of somebody or something. They just don't know it's Jesus yet. And man, I love to be the guy that goes and tells them, hey, it's Jesus you've been looking for your whole life. And the fact that Jesus won't turn anyone away, that he welcomes everyone. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. I love that I can tell prisoners that. And I, you know, I've had people say to me, do you think those, those guys can really get saved? You know, some of those guys are murderers in there. And there are, by the way. I, by the way, I never ask, what are you in here for? <laughs> I've, I learned before I ever went in there, I, I thought I'm never asking that question. Because honestly, I don't want my flesh getting involved. Amen? Because if I know what they're in there for, then I could get judgmental. I don't want to go that way. I want to go in there saying, man, I'm bringing the grace and mercy of God in this place, and everybody here needs it. Everybody here is a, is a, is a prospective uh, a buyer for me. Not a buyer, you know what I'm saying. But I've had people with a real snooty attitude. Can I say a pharisaical attitude? Say to me, do you think that the, the guy that you just prayed with that murdered somebody can really get saved? Hey, 
I just bring them back to Barabbas. I take them to the thief on the cross that repented. Are you with me? They were getting crucified. Listen, they were getting the death penalty. They had done some really bad stuff. But Jesus said to that thief, he didn't say, hey, if you join Valley Forge Baptist, I'll take you to heaven with me. He didn't tell him you had to get baptized. By the way, I love that one for the people that are Church of Christ people who think you had to get baptized to get to heaven. That thief didn't have a chance to get baptized. He didn't have a chance to give a dime to the church. He didn't have a chance to take communion. He didn't have a chance to do anything but repent. And he did that. We call him the repentant thief. You know what? There, there were, I think Barabbas was headed right for the crucifixion that day. I really do. I think he may have been on the center cross if Jesus hadn't taken his place. I believe that God touched the heart of Pilate to call the name of Barabbas so that you and I today would know that there is no one beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy. I mean no one. I'm talking about a prisoner. I'm talking about any of the kids that are in the children's ministry. I'm talking about the, any of the deaf that come in, across our paths. I'm talking about Reformers Unanimous. I'm talking about the teen ministry. And by the way, all those places are filled with hooligans. I'm talking about everybody in this room today. Nobody in this room today is beyond, or anybody watching online is beyond the mercy and the grace of God. How do we know that? Because God's mercy and grace reached to Barabbas. And God pulled Barabbas up out of the, out of the prison so we would know who Barabbas was. If, if Pilate had never asked this question, we would not have a clue who Barabbas was. He would just be another one of the men who was crucified for his deeds, his evil deeds. But tonight I think the really important question, and again, I'm going to get to the real heart of it. The real important question for tonight, Pilate asked the question, whom will ye that I release unto you? Here's the question I'm going to ask you tonight. Who will ye release? Barabbas or Jesus, which is the Christ? Interesting question. How about it? You realize, you realize that inside each of us tonight, there is the Adamic nature. What does that mean? It means all of us were born in sin. Adam sinned first. We all followed him. All of us have within us a sin nature. If you've trusted Christ as your personal Savior, and I, I pray that every one of you have. I'm, I'm not saying you all have. I don't know that. But if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you also got a spiritual nature. So you have living within you right now a sinful nature, Barabbas, we're going to name it, and you have a spiritual nature that was placed there by Jesus Christ in the form of the, in the person of the Holy Spirit of God. And so tonight you have a choice to make. Which will you release? Which are you releasing to the world? Turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to park here for just a, a few minutes, not very long. Romans chapter 6, I love this, this passage. Uh, Paul lays it out pretty clearly for us. By the way, this, this whole, uh, I could have gone to Romans 7 as well, but we're going to go to Romans 6 tonight. But Paul does that whole thing in Romans 7 that talks about that battle that I'm talking about. The battle between the Barabbas within you and the, and the Christ who's within you. That struggle that goes back. You know, Paul says, the things that I would do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. You, know, you remember that passage in Romans 7? If you, don't, if you don't shake your head yes, I'm going to go make you read it. So, yes, we do remember. Look at, look at chapter 6. Look at verse, by the way, these are such practical verses. Look at verse 11. 
Paul wrote, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Verse 13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Folks, do you know what those three verses mean? Those three verses Paul's telling us, you do have a Barabbas within you. You do have lustful uh, desires and thoughts. By the way, it's not always sexual. You have, lust, you have lust in your heart. You want something you don't have. You're jealous. You're angry. You gossip. I mean, we could go on and on and on. You're dishonest. All of these things are within you. But you've also been given the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God to live within you. And the choice of which one rules your life is your choice. He says here, look at verse 13 again, neither yield your members or your body as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Listen, what, what he says to us here is, you need to yield, and it's your choice. I heard the story of a missionary who was uh, working with uh, tribal groups in a, in a distant country, and uh, he had led the chief of the tribe to Christ. He was so excited. The chief was really an a huge instrument in seeing their, the entire tribe influence for Christ. But the missionary had to go home on furlough. He returned back to the States for a year, and when he went back to the tribe, he, he saw the chief right away. The chief was waiting for him, and he went up to the chief, and he said, Chief, how are things going? And the chief looked at the missionary, and he said, Well, it all depends on which dog I feed. The missionary was curious, and he said, what do the do What's a dog have to do with anything? He said, Well, within me, before you came, there was an old dog. And if I feed that old dog, he grows. But when I receive Christ, I got a new dog in me. And if I feed that new dog, he grows. You know what the old chief was saying? You cannot feed both natures at once. You cannot feed the Barabbas within you and the Christ that's in you with the same food. They don't eat the same thing. So I want you to consider tonight the, the most important question uh, Pilate asked that question, whom will ye that I release unto you? But I'm asking you, whom is, who is it that you're releasing in your testimony to the world that you live in? Would you agree with me that today our world needs Jesus Christ more than it's ever needed it before? The challenge tonight is not what ended up happening in this story. We know what happened. And, and by the way, if Jesus was not chosen over Barabbas, we would be most miserable today because Jesus did come into the world to give his life as a ransom. He did come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus did come to this earth, we said this last week, to die. And he was chosen in the providence of God and the sovereignty of God. He was chosen, or Barabbas was chosen rather than Christ. I'm so glad because if Barabbas died for his sins, he wouldn't help my sins at all, amen? But when Jesus died for my sins, he took on himself all of my sin. 
and he died in my place. Now, knowing that, my goal, I got saved when I was six years old. I just wrote to somebody this week, I wrote, wrote to a deaf man, uh, and I think it, this summer is going to be 57 years, or 58 years ago that I trusted Christ as my Savior. And you know what? Ever since that day, I feel that I'm indebted to Jesus Christ. I'm indebted to Christ to show him in the way I think, in the way I act, in the way I speak, and in the way I live. Would you agree? I owe him. Are you with me? Can you say that with me? I owe him. Say it again. I owe him. I owe Jesus Christ the best of what I have, not the, not the scraps of what I have. I owe him my best efforts. I, know, I owe him my best abilities and talents. I owe him my best attitudes. I owe him my best speech. I owe him the best of anything or everything that I can give him. He deserves that and 5,000 times more. But I get to thinking about, who am I releasing to the world today? Because I got to be honest with you, Barabbas lives within me. That Barabbas spirit lives within me. My righteousnesses are nothing better than filthy rags. And I realize when I step into a prison or I stand before anybody that I am no better than they are and I'm no worse than they are. Are you with me? So when, I, when you think about that question, who, whom will ye that I release unto you? Change it just slightly for application's sake. We're not going to change scripture. Please don't. Don't start spreading that rumor about me. But who is it that you release? Does the world that you, the, do the people that you work with think you're more like Barabbas than Jesus? Does your language reflect Barabbas more than it reflects Jesus? Does your attitude reflect a Barabbas attitude uh, more than it reflects a Christ-like attitude? I think you know where I'm going. And I hope that you'll take this to your heart like by the way, I will tell you this. Whenever I study to preach or teach, I get 5,000 times more out of it than I can ever give you. And boy, I've really been under conviction this week as I've studied this because I know me. And uh, I, I don't want you to know me that way, frankly. I want you to think I'm always like Jesus Christ. But I'm not. I, that's my goal that's what I want to be. That's the, that's the goal every morning I wake up. I want to be more like Christ. He, he made me in his image. I want, to, I want to get back to where what he made me for and what he made me to do. And I want to say it's time for us to lose sight of ourselves and to put Jesus Christ on center stage of our lives. Heavenly Father, would you help us to do that? We know that we need you. We know, Father, that uh, without you, we are nothing. And we realize that Barabbas is just a picture of, of really who we could be. But God help us to yield the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Not to, to give in to the lust of our flesh and the pride of our eyes and the pride of life, but God help us to lose ourselves and, and let the mind of Christ be in us. And God help us to exalt our Savior in the week ahead. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May I just share with you before you all run out, um, I asked you to pray last week for a, a man that our son-in-law Jesse and, and our daughter Monica were witnessing to. Uh, the Lord took him into eternity. 
I believe Thursday, uh, Thursday night. Uh, the funeral and all that has taken place. Uh, the one really good piece of news is that his younger brother, we believe, got saved. So uh, keep praying, if you would, for our kids. But I did, some of you have been asking me, and I just wanted to let you know, I do really appreciate every one of you that's, that told me. We were praying for that man. I never told you his name, and I won't tell you now, but God knows. Uh, we're praying uh, our, our granddaughter, our oldest granddaughter, I think I mentioned this last week, had sent him a text that was just incredibly <laughs> pointed. I, I really believe inspired. And he did read that before he died, so we're praying that when he read that, he trusted Christ. We don't know. We'll find out when we get to heaven, uh, but appreciate you praying for him. I want to ask you one last thing. Uh, I am going to be preaching on Good Friday. I have to tell you, the most favorite time I think I've ever preached in my life was Good Friday five years ago, or whenever it was my turn list. I still remember the message I preached about. What was so good about Friday? Well, I won't be repeating that one because I just told you what it was, but <laughs> would you really pray uh, that unsaved people will come in this room on Good Friday. That's what I want you to pray. And then I want you to pray that the gospel is so clear that they have to make a choice. So pray for the Good Friday service, and uh, thank you so much for being here tonight. I will see you on Sunday. David, a man after God's own heart. We're going to turn to Hebrews 11. We're going to do something tonight we've never done before. If it doesn't work, we'll never do it again. But we won't know until we try. So are you willing to be a Peter and get out of the boat and uh, walk on the water and let God uh, use you to be a blessing to others? Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, would you please stand with me tonight as we share from God's Word one of the many places we find the name David in our New Testament. And so Hebrews 11, we know verse 6 well, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And then we have a listing of men and women who live by faith. Let's drop down to verse 30. Hebrews 11:30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she received the spies with peace. And what shall I more say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel, and the prophets, who, through faith, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth, mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in, in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens." So I wonder if you can pick out some things, verses 33 and verse 34, that would apply to David. May we pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement it brings to us. It corrects us, rebukes us. It cleanses us. Your word is alive. It's a living word. And we're so thankful for what it 
what it means to us uh, that we are saved by hearing the Word of God and the truth about Jesus Christ. We are empowered to defeat sin. We learn the truths of how to live the Christian life, how to be a good witness, following the footsteps of the Lord Jesus and the apostles. And now I pray that as we consider this, this man after God's own heart, that you'd put a, a passion and a desire in each one of us to know you more and more, to love you more and more, to serve you more and more. God bless our time tonight as we share different things that you've taught us through these many months together studying David. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Tonight we're going to have a time of testimony, lessons I have learned from the life of David. And you can say that too. Lessons I have learned, you have learned from the life of David. So we have some microphones set up, and I'll share a few lessons, and that might spark something in your heart and mind. Say, you know, God, God was teaching me something as well through that. The Bible has so much to say about David, more than any other character in the Old Testament. There are 66 chapters about David in the Old Testament and 59 references to him in the New Testament. We find him here in Hebrews 11. Not only do you find him throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, but also half of the Psalms reveal his heart and his love for God and the Word of God as he wrote them. Now, I have preached 35 messages, sermons on David. I've learned so much from preparing these messages. I've been challenged by David's passion, his faith, and his obedience, and I've been rebuked as well. So let me begin our testimony time tonight, and you can be thinking uh, as what God has taught you, and then see if you think the Lord would have you be able to share it. Hopefully not as long as I go, but uh, we want to be able to see if there would be multiple people that would say that God has taught you some lessons that would encourage others. Lesson number one, here we go. Lessons I've learned. I don't have to be perfect to have a heart for God. I don't have to be perfect to have a heart for God. I, I think the life of David began speaking to my heart way back when I was a teenager, some many decades ago. Because, because of my father passing away when I was almost four, uh, my mom was working full-time at Olmsted Air Force Base in Middletown. I was enrolled in school uh, a year earlier than most kids. And so for the next 10 years, I was always shorter and younger than, than almost all of my classmates. In the ninth grade, there was one guy that was shorter than me in West Springfield High School. We had 3,000 students, one guy shorter than me, and he was almost a midget, and I was just a little bit above him. And so I didn't really grow in height until the 10th grade. But I think that contributed to me becoming somewhat of an introvert in a crowd and also contributed to my fear of public speaking that lasted well into my pastoring years. And then I learned about this teenager, this young man who was described as a man after God's own heart, and the more I, I read about him, the more I discovered he, he had all kinds of problems. He committed sin, deep sin, and several times, and yet God keeps forgiving him, and God keeps using him. This is a great lesson for everyone. I don't have to be perfect to have a heart for God. God is not looking for perfection. He is looking at the direction of our life. 
as we read the list of the heroes of the faith of Hebrews chapter 11, you're not going to find very many perfect people, are you? Not one. And most of them have some stain or scar deep upon their heart and life. God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for the direction of my heart. And that would be, do I want to please God? Do I want to please God? Do I want to believe God? Do I want to obey God? Do I want to glorify God? And if I do, God will help me be a man or a woman after God's own heart. So let's kind of do a, a journey by way chronologically of David's life here. And here you see the shepherd with the sheep actually taken in Israel in Bethlehem. And so we first meet David as a teenager in a lonely field on the hills of Bethlehem, watching a few of his father's sheep. When the prophet Samuel comes to the house of Jesse to anoint the new king to replace the prideful king, King Saul, David is not even given a thought. He's all but forgotten for this momentous occasion. And Samuel scratches his prophetic head and he says, Do you have any more sons? God has not chosen any of these. And so the second lesson I've learned from the life of David is don't despise the small tasks you do for God. Don't despise the small tasks you do for God. David was just faithful to God. David was faithful to his father when no one was watching. No one was watching, but God. God was watching. And when the lion came and the bear came, David did not run away. He stayed. He risked his life to protect the sheep. And you and I may do small tasks for God and for others that nobody knows. But God knows. And that's not just enough. That's more than enough that God knows. Did you know that every Sunday, and I see it sometimes, every Sunday someone leaves the nursery with a white bag of trash? Do you know what is in that bag of trash? Would you stand up if you have ever taken that bag of diapers to the dumpster? Would you stand up? Wow, I had no idea. Thank you all. I just took away some of your treasure in heaven because now everybody knows. <laughs> if you didn't do that little tiny task, we'd have a stinking building, wouldn't we? Right? I don't even know. Is it, is it done in the morning or just in the evening? Every time. So every service. Okay. Yep, didn't know that. So that means a lot more people. It's a little task, but it sure means a lot. Do you know that David did these little tasks, but it sure meant a lot? And so let me take you to the south of, a place south of Bethlehem. It looks pretty much the same as it did 3,000 years ago. Not much has changed. No building has occurred. And do you know what this valley is called? It's called the what? The Valley of Elah. And, and many of you have been to the Valley of Elah. Do you recognize this place? You see, a very bad man used to be here, and for 40 days he came and he mocked God, and he mocked God's people, and his name was Goliath. And when a, a teenage boy showed up, 
he stepped out by faith. And this is the third lesson. Stepping out by faith is scary. Stepping out by faith is exciting. Stepping out by faith is dangerous. And so the David and Goliath story has been told again and again for 3,000 years by every generation. I mean, it's part of our vernacular. I hear it on the news all the time. They talk about the, uh, uh, another, yet another David and Goliath story. And what they're talking about is, is the underdog, the one who surely cannot win, but he does. For me, David in the Valley of Elah is every building program we've ever had. If you're new to our church, you are unaware that our first two building programs, the bank required that me and a few deacons would sign as co-signers, co-guarantors on the loan. The first building loan was $375,000. And me and the three deacons co-signed, placing, placing our own houses up for equity. Dan DeWitt. Morris Rudder, John Stever. These men were twice my age. And I'm all excited because it, it's, it's a little bit humorous because the first, the first loan that we requested, uh, we were denied. The bank president sent me a letter and said, we, we cannot finance this loan. And then years later, he joined our church. <laughs> Uh, and a few years after that, after he'd been widowed, I, I actually officiated his, his wedding. And he's watching tonight. Uh, so, so the first loan was denied. And then we had a loan that was approved, Meridian Bank. And I'm all excited because it's just a little detail in the footnote. You have to risk everything you own to, to be able to, to get this. And, and I, had, I had like $9,000 of equity in my townhouse. And uh, these men, twice my age, they had worked their whole life, right? And their, 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 their houses are basically paid for, so they got a lot of equity. So apparently they had a lot more faith than I had, a lot more at risk uh, to be able to, to do that. Second building, over a million dollars. Again, several deacons risking it all, including Pastor Eifert, Tom Zedzi, Don Evans, uh, putting their name down there to say, I'm all in. I'm all in. Stepping out by faith is scary. It's exciting. It's dangerous. And thankfully, the last couple of building programs, they did not require uh, myself and the deacons to be able to, to do that. Now we're at the edge of another building program. And so the pastors are reviewing it. The deacons had a meeting tonight. They'll have another one. Again, reviewing it. It's scary. It's exciting. Uh, not everyone has the faith to do it. I understand that. That's where those of us who have killed the lion and killed the bear, killed the Goliath, we have to be patient and willing to let others borrow or lean on our faith as we go through this. And we will seek, we will seek to do only what God would have us to do in his time. Let's go to the next picture here. Where do you think this is? Cave of Adullam. The cave of Adullam. Out of the cave of Adullam, David gave us Psalm 142, possibly two other Psalms uh, as well. And so the fourth message I, the fourth lesson I've learned is when I backslide, I make poor choices. When I return to God, 
I make good choices. Pretty simple, isn't it? When, when, when I backslide, when you backslide, we're just going to make bad choices. And when we return to God, we're going to make good choices. When David was running from Saul, he made several poor choices, right? He took the showbread, and, and some people died from that. He went, to, uh, he went to Gath, where he had killed Goliath, and he, he feigns, he pre pretends insanity. I mean, just some bad decisions he made there. Um, they weren't all sinful. Here's how we know, because Jesus even used one of his poor decisions as an illustration saying that David eating the showbread was not unlawful. So if Jesus says it wasn't a sin, then I think we'd have to agree with Jesus, wouldn't we? It wasn't a sin. Poor decision, but it was not a sin. So if my heart is sincere, if my heart is right with God, God has the power to overrule my decisions even when I make decisions that might not be the best decisions. And that, that's happened in our building programs. I, I remember leading our church to vote 100% to buy land on Black Rock Road. God shut the deal down. God, I remember leading our church to vote 100% uh, in a unanimous vote to be able to buy the land on Ashenfelter. Deal was shut down. I remember leading the church to vote 100% on buying the land on Black Rock Road, just about, I don't know, four or 500 yards from the corner of 29 and Black Rock. Deal fell through. It was like God saying, you're getting closer. <laughs> you're getting closer. <laughs> you're not there yet. Getting closer. Keep it up. And so then when this property became available, I presented to the church. Nobody said anything. <laughs> Nobody said anything. And, and I, what do we do? So I waited. We had a visitor. A visitor was named Dave. I think it might have been his second week there. It was a Sunday night. And he said, I, I haven't been here very long, but I, I, uh, I think God is really working through this church in a wonderful way. I've heard wonderful things, and now I'm here being a part of it. And he said, I'm not a member, so I can't vote tonight. But if I were a member, I would vote yes on buying that property on 113 and Black Rock Road. <laughs> and so God used a visitor just speaking out and encouraged it. And the people said, I make a recommendation. I make a second. We had a 100% vote, and here we are. When I backslide, I make poor decisions, poor choices. When I return to God, I make good choices. I think we were making good choices, but God knows how to overrule when we make poor choices. Number five, in my deepest trial, God can encourage me. Here's a good phrase to memorize from 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. You know that, that uh, you're going to have some hard times in life. You're going to have some low times, discouraging times, depressing times, Times that you feel like nobody cares and nobody understands and maybe times that you've been attacked and, and you just are down and out. And if you're one of those people, you need someone else to pump you up, you need to be like David. You need to learn from David. Do you know that, that, that in this same verse, verse 6, the Bible says that David's men spake of what? Stoning him. I mean, that's... That's pretty low, isn't it? I mean, you're fleeing from King Saul, and you, you, you get to Ziklag, and 
the wives and the children have all been kidnapped. All the stuff is gone. They burn the city, and he is literally the end of his rope. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Man, oh man, I love that message. That's a great lesson for all of us. When you just, there's no one you can turn to, you can turn to God. He'll be there for you. And you can find courage and encouragement from God himself. So David finally becomes king. He goes to Jerusalem. It became his capital. And to this day, it is called the city of David. The city of David. Can you guess where David's palace is located in this drawing? It's at the top. That's right. You go all the way to the right, to the top, and we have now archaeologically uncovered it. They're 99.9% sure that they have uncovered the rocks and the foundation of David's palace. Now, do you remember what it was he was doing when he should have been out in battle with his men, and he's walking in the patio overlooking the rooftops below? That's when he spotted who? He spotted Bathsheba, bathing in the privacy of her rooftop. wasn't so private if he could see it. And you know the sordid story. He took her. He sent Uriah to the forefront of the battle. He, he died, was killed in battle. David then took Bathsheba. So the fifth lesson to learn from David is, is this. The, the penalties of sin are far greater than the pleasures of sin. The penalties of sin are far greater than the pleasures of sin. And even though God took the one baby in death at seven days old, he let the next child of that marriage between David and Bathsheba become the man who would take the throne after David. Who was that? Solomon. If you and I were God, there's no way, there's no way we would, we would let Solomon... Is that rain? Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not preaching on uh, uh, Job and the, the tornado coming, all right? Uh, there's no way that we would let Solomon become the successor to the throne of David. That doesn't make any sense. Why would God do that? I mean, you've got all these other wives and all these other sons that are much older and more qualified. Aren't you glad... You're not God. God is much more gracious than you are, much more gracious than I am, much more gracious than we are. Amen to that. But the penalties of sin are far greater than the pleasures of sin. Think of all the family problems that David had because of that sin. Problems with Amnon, with Tamar, with Absalom, with Adonijah. And then I can just say, yikes, right? Sorry, it was, it, was, it was very difficult. Okay, so I've got one more, but I'm going to stop here and see if you have some testimonies. Uh, we have a microphone here. We have a microphone here. And uh, I've given you six lessons I've learned. I wonder if there's something that you would like to share. So I'll just have you come down, and you can sit in the front row here, sit in the front row here if you're waiting for someone else. And so it would probably be best if we had... A couple people come down this way now, and a couple people come down this way now, and we'll pick you up on the microphone and share. Anyone? 
God speak to your heart any lessons that from the life of David spoke to you personally and you'd like to be able to share it. We got some down here. And so just come right down to the, uh, the chairs here. Go ahead and step up, come on down. And if you would, go ahead and just introduce yourself. And we have, this is the newest member of our orchestra. Hi, my name is George. Let me, let me have you face the congregation. Yep, I think it's on. Hi, my name is George Shanelow. We've only been here several weeks, but uh, I vote for number five. Number five? In 2010, the Lord took my wife home to be with him. And in my loneliness, one day I sat there meditating in the scriptures. And what did I come to but 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. He's already told you the story how David came back to Ziglag and the city was burned and the wives and children were gone. His men were about to stone him, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. I found encouragement in the Lord my God as I meditated in his word. And three and a half years later, I have a wife again. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Brother George joined the uh, orchestra. Carol joined the choir and said how when he was widowed, that was the verse. That was the verse God used to be able to help him. Brother Allen. Good evening. I'm Al Johnson, and I love music. I've been singing choirs now for 30 years, but what inspires me about David was when he took the chance because he was so young, what did he do? He was called upon God to go to Saul to play the instrument. Mm. When Saul was angry, he had to play the instrument to soothe him. But to, can you imagine what had happened if David didn't soothe him? What could the king do to David? What was king's power? He could kill him. But David had the trust of God that he could play this beautiful harp and the music and soothe Saul's soul. And that's what music does to everybody. Amen. It soothes your soul. And I'm just glad that I can sing God's praises here in Valley Forge. Amen. With Alan Johnson singing in our choir, done that for decades. And he said how God uses music to be able to soothe our soul as David played the harp. Now, if you have a problem with temper, if you have a problem with worry, you have a problem with, with an addictive sin, you need Christian music to fill your heart and mind. Brother Kevin. Oh, well, let's get it, uh, get it real close to your mouth, and we'll turn this other microphone on. We good? Okay. Hello. seems like it's really our lives, or at least my life. You know, I've been really frustrated with work, with dealing with personalities and trying to get the job done. And, but David, you could see where he struggled. God, where are you? What's going on? But normally by the end of the chapter, he's praising the Lord for something. And it just touched me. Like, things were pretty much the same back then. There, They had their struggles in life, and that was, that was uh, David. He had struggles. And he was trusting the Lord each time. And maybe the Lord didn't answer it right away. I mean, he struggled through the Bathsheba and the, the, the struggles there. But it just, it's, the book of Psalms is so, 
wonderful to read and, and it's just a great way to start the day of what the Lord was doing through David's life and the realization how real it is now even with us what David went through amen amen and to think David wrote half of the Psalms that God would let him do that to minister to all of us Psalm 23 encouraging hearts and lives for 3,000 years anyone else God has taught you a lesson through the life of David Carol, let's get a microphone to you. So um, we're going to we'll have Lou do that. And while that's happening, anyone else? Anyone else uh, come, want to come to this microphone? Hi, I'm Carol Carmen. <clears throat> and David had taught me, listening to the stories of David taught me a lot of stuff. I can't walk anymore. God put me on six legs, two, two for the wheelchair, two for my, my legs. But because of the, like, God was able to use my disability for his while and his good. And when you hear about David, it's like, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, oh, oh. <laughs> He's going up against a big, big giant and all that kind of stuff. And then he became king. There was just a lot of stuff in there that spoke to my heart because I learned when I was young about being testimony and I went to a secular high school and I was put down laughed at told I was ugly all kinds of stuff because I didn't fit in but I'm just here to say because I have God and this this story of David I can just say, hey, I'm pretty good, and I've got six legs now. Amen. God helps us in our trials. We all have the giants that uh, we have to face as well. Anyone else? And I have one final lesson to share. Going once. Anyone else? Lessons from David? All right, we're going to go to, uh, oh, yep. We have Victor coming. You don't want to go home now anyways, right? <laughs> You're going to get soaked. You better keep testifying here. Go ahead, Victor. I'll make, it, I'll make it long. <laughs> Hold up high so we can hear you. Uh, I was having difficulty uh, just getting up and coming up here. Uh, I've been a Christian for 50 years now. I'm 72 years old. 
but as a believer like King David, um, I can say that as a Christian that I have failed as a father, as a husband, uh, as a Christian believer with other Christians as well, and non-believers as well. Uh, but I read a verse, uh, Pastor re referred to it. It was uh, that King David was a man after God's own heart. And when I read that many, many years ago, I said to myself, I said, wow. I said, God, you, you I, I saw all the failures that he did, King David. And I, as a believer, and I noticed in my Christian life, as I started to grow, starting 50 years ago, and even to the present day, I can see that, that I fail God at many times. But the thing that encouraged me with that verse is that I think Pastor Eifert, a couple of weeks ago, had said that King Solomon uh, started out well, but he didn't end well. King David didn't start well, but he ended well. And that's what I want to do with my own life as well. When I read that verse years, years ago, that David was a man after God's own heart, I said to myself, wow, I, I want to be that way. Amen. Then there was another verse that came along and I read there, and it's talked about the heart again, when Jesus told Peter, do you love me? I said to myself, wow, you know? I said, God, you know, you know I love you. And I can see, I can see probably David the same way, Fail, failure after failure, wow, you know? But in his heart, he really, really, really loved God. And there is a place there, talked about the heart again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. God even said it to his people. He says, oh, that they may have such a heart in them that they will fear me and keep my commandments always. Mm -hmm. So when I read that part with the uh, King David, that he was a man after God's heart, I said, God, I said, really? You said, oh, that they will have such a heart? And then I then my prayer started changing. I said, God, oh, that I would have such a heart that I will fear you and keep your commandments always. So I, I just want to encourage you. I mean, I've been a Christian for 50 years. I mean, I failed a lot. But the thing I know that God loves me. Amen. And my Christian walk, just because I give out tracts, just because I work in the bus ministry, just because I, you know, sing in the choir. God is not looking, God is not looking for performance. He's just looking that, hey, do, do you love me? Really, do you love me? You know, when you love God, it, it changes everything. That's right. You want to give out tracks. You want to talk to people. Mm -hmm. You don't want them to go to hell. Your, your heart becomes like God. So, so I, yeah, it was difficult. 
coming up here because I was to God. God's telling me, come on, get up, get up. Amen. And, and my wife, you know what my wife said? You have to go to the restroom? <laughs> <laughs> this is better. <laughs> yeah, this is better. So uh, that, those are the, uh, uh, that particular thing that uh, God has uh, it's just changed my heart. And if he changes your heart to love people. And I know a pastor mentioned, hey, Victor gave out tracts. Look, somebody got saved here. Oh, there. It's not that. It, God wants you not to do performance, grab a track. And, you know, I'm still scared stiff giving out tracts and things like that, talking to people after 50 years. But when you know that God loves you, I mean, really, really loves you, I mean, you're overwhelmed. You got to talk to people. You got to share. You know, pe pe people are going to die and go to hell. Mm -hmm. You don't want them to go there. You know, I'm going, I'm going to heaven, but I want them to go too. Amen. So I think the rain stops. So I should Thank stop. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. Well, these guys are coming. I, uh, Victor took a bunch of teenagers to New York one time, and uh, as I dropped off Jeremy as a teenager, he said, you probably didn't read your Bible this morning, so let me just read a couple verses to you. He started in Psalm 119, read the whole thing <laughs> in the Coventry parking lot. So this kid's got a good dose that morning. Okay, uh, Brother Ron and Dave, thank you. Get, get close there, okay? Okay. I enjoyed the message um, talking about the uh, loving kindness. That word you said said or has said and uh, I, I don't I don't really have a message but um, I, I enjoy when words fit together with with other passages and like in Hosea it says it and and says about and I was reading that and like uh, talking about the betrothal and that even though you're we're basically wicked and can't get it right ever that God still even though and and like God is this um, you know concept in 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 the world out there where if if they knew that God loves like this then that's what they're looking for but Amen. they just they, they uh it's hard to understand that concept that that god that he wants a relationship and it's not any more than that amen thank and you that's awesome thank you i feel like pastor colton with the uh <clears throat> illustration for you. Um, the story that I like about David has to do with his tender heart, where in uh, 1 Samuel 24, uh, Saul goes in to go to the bathroom in the cave, you know that story? Mm -hmm. And he cuts a chunk of his robe off, and then he gets under conviction. His heart smote him, and he had a tender heart. So I've come this morning, or this after this evening, to confess my sin. Uh, on Friday at 3.30 in the afternoon, I was working from home. I didn't have to drive to my office in Harrisburg, and we lost our power. Our power went out. And, oh, boy, 
And we know, I find out, I drive down over the hill, and one of these massive trees on Country Club Road had fallen down, crossed the road, and taken the power lines down. So I, from, his, from historical perspective, we said, this is a two-dayer. You know, we're going to be without power for two days. So Ellen's thinking about that, and she calls our dear friends, Pastor Jody, Pastor Wendell and Jody, and could we bring over some groceries before they go bad in our refrigerator? So we get bags of groceries together, and about 7.30, we go over to the Wendell's and take those, and sure enough, our power was out, and, and I got a text when we were over at Pastor Wendell and Jody's house and said, your power will be on at 2 in the morning. And I said to Pastor, we'll be over by 3. Yeah, just kidding. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, no, no, we'll wait till morning. So our power came in on about 4.15, and uh, so Ellen worked with Jody. What, can we come over to get the rest of the groceries? How about 4 o'clock on Saturday, 4 p.m.? So Ellen sends me over, and uh, Jody's not home, Pastor's not home, but their daughter-in-law Katie's there. And I said, I don't know exactly where these groceries are. You know, they came in bags. And so Katie takes me down the, the basement into the refrigerator, and we start unloading the groceries into these, these, these cloth bags. And I, I, they're all in, like, plastic bags. I didn't look at anything because I didn't really know what they took down in the first place. So we emptied the refrigerator. <laughs> I drive away. Jody's not home. And uh, Ellen calls like a maniac. She says, you got to turn around. you got to turn. Why? You stole Pastor Jody's dessert that they're taking to the oysters tonight for dinner. <laughs> I said, oh, this is wonderful. He'll never let me live it down. I'm stealing his groceries. So I immediately turn around, and I'm thinking, oh, no, their cake is an upside-down cake or something, you know? Because I, I, we, because we paid no attention, Katie and I. We're just throwing stuff in the bags. I, I, I thought, it's a cake. It's going to be upside-down. Oh, you know, I've got to run to Wegmans and get another cake. And I'm thinking all these things. And we get it back, and, and sure, sure enough, it was fine. Jody, Jody comes out to my car, and it's right on top. I, I assume it was okay. And um, so I get home. Ellen's in the shower, and I start to unload these groceries, and here's my sin. I stole one more thing from the Wendell's. <laughs> you never thought you'd hear all this at the church, did no, you? No, no, never. I stole a cabbage. <laughs> and I immediately knew this wasn't our cabbage, because I've been married 38 years. We never had cabbage. <laughs> So just like David, when he fell under deep conviction, when he entered that cave and cut a chunk of uh, Saul's robe off, I confess my sin to you. The Lord touched my heart. I'll return the cabbage after the service. Amen. The dessert was really good. I, I was given this this morning, and I didn't, I didn't know who it belonged to, but um, Brother Drew Morris gave it to me, and he said, this dropped out of someone's car, and it's a parking violation. I'm assuming it's Brother Davis's. <laughs> $25 fine. So if you think it's yours, we'll go ahead and pass that on to you, but you might want that. All right. The heart, the conscience. One last lesson, and we'll close tonight. Number seven, when I exercise faith, 
God will work. And that brings us back to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. So you want to please God? You got to have faith. You want to please God? You got to believe that He is. You want to please God? You got to believe that He will reward you when you do right. The reward might come in this life, might come in the next. But then in verse 30, David's name is mentioned. Uh, 30, uh, let's see here, 32. What shall I more say about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets? So I'll read the list and you tell me if you think David did this. Who through faith subdued kingdoms? Do you think that could refer to David? Yes. Wrought righteousness. Do you think that could refer to David? Yes. Obtained promises. Oh boy, he got a big one, didn't he? It's called the Davidic covenant. Oh God, I want to build you a house. Prophet says, go, do all that's in your heart. God speaks to the prophet, go back and say, you tell David, you can't build my house, but I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. You're going to be able to sit in the throne with Messiah in the millennial kingdom. That's pretty cool. Stop the mouths of lions. We typically, typically default to, David, or to Daniel, don't we? But could that refer to David too? Yes. Quench the violence of fire. That's the three men in the fiery furnace. Escape the edge of the sword. Could that be David? Absolutely. Out of weakness were made strong. Yes? Waxed valiant in fight. Teenage boy down in the valley of Elah, not to mention all the other battles. Turn to fight, to flight the armies of the aliens, the unbelievers. David? Oh, you bet it is. So, the lesson, when I exercise faith, God will work. Church family, you're going to be called to exercise faith. It might be something as simple as being faithful in the little things. It might be something as big as making a sacrificial financial gift for Easter offering for the building fund. It might be something that, that you are going to be in contact with relatives for Easter and even praying and thanking God for the food at the Easter table can create conflict and fight. Are you going to bow your head and thank God for the food before you? It might be another opportunity to witness to relatives, whatever it is. David did it, so can you. When I exercise faith, God will work. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we are, we are grateful. We're grateful to be able to hear the testimonies of your people that have been touched through the life of David, the messages that we've learned. Father, we know that we didn't even cover all of his life, but many of the highlights. And we're, we're grateful tonight to be able to even share lessons that will encourage others, some going through some deep trials, the loss of a spouse, and, and others going through times of, of uh, looking for encouragement and courage, and you give it through your word and by your spirit. So Lord, I pray that even, even this week, that we would be faithful to you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're here tonight and you are not certain that the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, you've never been born again, you're, you're not sure that when you die, you'd go to heaven. Tonight you heard about a believer 
who has been faithful to God. And your first step to God is to become a Christian. And tonight, you're, you're just not sure if heaven's your home. I invite you to believe the Bible, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to believe that he died for you and that he rose again. You can't go to heaven without him. You can't go to heaven with your sin. You can only be forgiven one way, and that is by the blood of Jesus Christ, believing that, that Jesus died in your place and rose again. So tonight this message may be new to you, but I would not want you to walk out of this Family Life Center without inviting you to come to Christ, to be born again, to become a true and genuine follower of the Savior. Maybe you have a profession, maybe you have a baptism, but it must be real. It must be real. So tonight I, I invite you, if, if you've never called upon the Lord, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Would you pray with me right where you're seated? Pray with me from your heart. God will hear the prayer of your heart. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart tonight. Become my Lord and Savior. Please save me tonight. And give me the promise of heaven as I follow Christ. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed as we show respect to our neighbor. If you just pray with me, I want to say to you, welcome to the family of God. And if you've just prayed to receive Christ, would you simply raise your hand? Would you hold it up high? Just for a moment that I might see it, that I might pray for you, anyone at all. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. Yes, Pastor, I've received you as Savior. Anyone at all. Just hold your hand up that I might see and pray for you tonight. God bless you. Thank you for that. Lord, tonight we're grateful. We're grateful for the power of God in our lives, the power of God to save those who believe and receive, even with the faith of a child. Lord, give us a great week now as we plow and plant and water and invite, inviting people to come to Christ this Easter weekend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You'll find 2 Thessalonians. Now the apostle Paul is writing to a really good church, but you know even good churches have struggles. They're struggling with persecution and sin. They're even struggling with doctrinal errors. Every church has problems. Why? Because they're filled with people. Ever hear the phrase, all God's children got problems. Yes, all God's children got problems. And yet God uses problems and trials in our life to, to grow our faith. If you're looking for a perfect church, you've come to the wrong place. You've come to the wrong place. If you're looking for a perfect church, you're never going to find one. Now, if you're looking for a spiritually healthy church, you've come to the right place. The Word of God is preached. Jesus Christ is exalted. Christians are sharing their faith, as you've heard today. People are getting saved. People are getting baptized. They're being discipled. I, I heard after the early service today, someone came to me, and they said, Pastor, I had the most amazing experience. I was sitting next to someone, and as you prayed the salvation prayer, 
they prayed the salvation prayer in Spanish, and they were saved. Glory to God. God at work. Here in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul asked these people to pray for him, to pray for the leaders. Why? Because sometimes the ministry can be hard. Some people want to tear down what God is building. And so Paul points them to Christ. He tells them that they can experience God's love. And so my message is entitled, Experiencing God's Love When You Feel You Don't Deserve It. Would you please stand with me today as we read the opening verses of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we commanded you. Now our focus here is on verse 5. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. The Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. May we pray. Father, we ask now that you'd help us to set aside the cares, the burdens that we have and help us to focus on the message you have for us. I pray specifically if there are If there be some folks and they're just not sure that heaven is their home, may the Spirit of God convict and draw, bring them to yourself. May they make the decision to return, to come, to believe, to receive Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever had a spiritual train wreck. What is a spiritual train wreck? It is the day you discover God's holiness and your extreme sinfulness. The day you discover God's holiness and your extreme sinfulness, and you'll never forget it. You know, Isaiah had one of those days. Isaiah chapter 6 in the vision, he said, Woe is me. Woe means cursed. It means damned. Woe is me because I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's holiness, man's sinfulness. Now, if you have unclean lips, that means you also have an unclean heart. Peter had one of those days. Peter fell down at Jesus' knees, and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. God's holiness, man's sinfulness. The apostle Paul had one of those days. This is a faithful saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. God's holiness, man's sinfulness. Have you had one of those days? Uh, where you discovered God's holiness, your sinfulness, and you know you need Him. You can't live without Him. If you haven't had that day, it will come, hopefully sooner than later. Now there in your notes on page 2 from John Maxwell's book, Failing Forward, Turning Mistakes into Stepping Stones for Success. This is what he writes. How to Grow in Humility 
after your spiritual train wreck. Number one, don't think less of yourself. Just think of yourself less. Isn't that good? Number two, know that failure is not the end of the world. Number three, when mistakes are made, recognize the problem, solve it, and move forward with the new knowledge. And then number four, live in such a way that you can always learn from others. Good advice. Failures, mistakes, sinfulness, we, we, we all know what it feels like. The big problem is when we let our feelings affect our relationship with God. Do you ever feel undeserving of God's love? Do you ever feel undeserving of God's mercy and His grace? How about His forgiveness? Have you ever felt like, I just do not deserve God's forgiveness? Especially after you said something, you did something, and you have such deep regret. Or maybe after being reminded by someone else of something you said or you did last week or last year or a decade ago. We've all heard it for years We've heard it from family. We've heard it from friends and co-workers. But you said this. But you said that. And I'm having a hard time forgiving. I'm having a hard time getting over that. Have you ever heard this phrase? Hurting people hurt people. Would you say that with me? Hurting people hurt people. That phrase may help you understand why some people say some of the things they say. But it does not lessen the hurt we personally feel when we are wounded by others. And many times those hurt feelings, they make us feel like we don't deserve God's love. We become so focused on the criticisms of others that we may feel far away from God. Yet, Christians are to be the best forgivers in the world. Why? Because we have been forgiven the most. You remember that story, Luke chapter 7, where the woman was there and she's crying and her tears wash Jesus' feet and she takes her hair and she dries it and Simon is thinking that if, if this rabbi knew who was, was washing his feet that he would not let her do that. Jesus read his thoughts and he said, Simon, suppose a man had a, a debtor of five pounds and 50 pounds and he forgave both debts. Who do you think would love the most? And and, and Simon said, well, that would be the one who was forgiven the most. And he said, this woman, this woman, yes, she has a sinful background, and she has been forgiven the most, and she loves the most. You know, Pastor Eifer preached that message and introduced a ministry called Reformers Unanimous many years ago with that story. Because we have been forgiven the most, we should be the best forgivers. So why do so many Christians feel so distant from God? Why do we feel that we don't deserve God's love? Well, the first reason we are tempted to feel we don't deserve God's love is because we don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve God's love because of our sin. We don't deserve it because we have sin. Our sin separated us from God. We've all allowed, walked, uh, we followed in the footsteps of our first parents, Adam and Eve. We've walked our own way. We've done our own thing. We've lived to please ourselves rather than please God. God warned Adam, one command, if you disobey, you will die. Romans 5, 12, wherefore is by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We all sin because we have been born with a sin nature. 
If you don't believe that is true, you need to sign up to serve in our three-year-old class just once, just once. Do you, do you think that our parents teach the toddlers to say things like, mine, 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 mine? Do, do you think they do that? Do you, do you think they teach their children how to have temper tantrums? Do you think they take the two-year-old and, and the mom lays down and, and she kicks and screams and the, and the dad jumps up and says, now this is how you have a temper tantrum? Do you think parents do that? Do you think they teach them how to steal and lie uh, and cheat? Parents don't do that. You see, it comes natural because we have a sin nature, and this sin nature comes out. If you think you have perfect kids, wake up and smell the coffee. Okay, new research, new research. Oh, oh, here it is. You tell your kids, don't go up those steps. Stay off of those steps, and what do they do? A baby gate, <laughs> I'm not going to stop them. <laughs> They're going to do what they want to do, even from very young. You know, there's a new research out. It's called, uh, it says, relational aggression starts as young as three years old. Relational aggression starts as young as three-year-olds. I wonder how many tens of thousands of dollars they spend to figure that out. We would have let them work in our, our nursery for free. Just one time, they could have figured that out. New research. New research? I don't think so. I, I think if we go to Psalm 58.3, we go back about 3,000 years. We read, from the womb they go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. You know, sometimes it takes science a while to catch up to the Bible. And so there it is. So why don't we feel God's love? But well, the first reason is legitimate. We don't deserve it because we sin. We're born sinners, but God. Don't you love that phrase, but God? But God loves us even when we are sinners. But God commended. God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us anyways. God loves us in spite of our sin. So God's love and mercy is it's greater than my sin. So, so why don't we feel God's love? Well, we don't deserve it because of our sins. Secondly, guilt from the past, our words and our actions. God created us with a conscience, and everyone feels guilt at one time or another because everyone has a conscience given to us by God. Romans chapter 2, 14, when the Gentiles, the unbelievers which have not the law, the Ten Commandments, when they do by nature the things contained in the law, their conscience bears witness, their thoughts meanwhile excusing or accusing one another. What is he saying? He's saying that every person in every place and every generation has a God-given conscience. I mean, there are countries that don't have a Bible, but they know that there is a right and there is a wrong. And so every culture, they worship some kind of God. Why? Because they feel guilty on the inside. And so they want to come to a God to forgive their sin they want their conscience to be healed and yet satan comes in and with hundreds and hundreds of false religions deceives people so we have this conscience it accuses us it affirms us when we do wrong it accuses us you hear it in your heart you shouldn't have done that you shouldn't have said that don't you feel awful look how you hurt that person and you have this pang of guilt when we do right, it affirms us, and it says, aren't you glad you said that? 
Aren't you glad you did that? Hey, hey, I know it was a little thing, but did you see their smile when you, when you said that? You made their day. Good job. It accuses. It affirms. Now watch how this works. It's not just our conscience that does this conviction and brings guilt, but the Bible says that Jesus said the Holy Spirit of God convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, the coming judgment, John 16, verses 8 to 11. So right now, all over the world, the Spirit of God is convicting people of sin, preparing their hearts to hear the gospel that they might come to Christ and to be saved and to be born again. God is bringing conviction. When we feel guilty, we need to come to God, not run away from God. When we feel guilty, we need to come to church, not run away from church. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Now, let me give you two real-life examples of, of how this conscience works. It was during the night of Jesus' arrest during this week, this week that we call the Passion Week. The first man I'll introduce to you is Judas. Uh, Judas, he left the Last Supper. He betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Once Jesus was arrested, he felt guilty. His conscience burdened him. He went to the chief priest. He threw the money down. And the Bible says this, Judas repented himself. Judas repented himself. He was sorry, but he didn't go to God. So what did he do? He went out and he what? He hung himself. Bad feeling, bad action. And that didn't work out so good either because he, he tied the rope to a branch that was weak and the branch broke. And the Bible says in Acts 1 that he fell down and it's pretty graphic. You can read it for yourself. Didn't turn out so good. Faulty thinking led to faulty feelings led to faulty actions. You know, many people are controlled by their feelings. How many people have attempted suicide? How many people have succeeded at suicide? And they, they did it because of how they felt. Faulty thinking led to faulty feelings. Just over 20 years ago, Jeff Hamm witnessed to a co-worker named Dana at a factory that he worked at at the time. The man was a hellraiser literally a motorcycle gang member. He was a member of the Warlocks down in the Coatesville area. Uh, he had committed awful crimes, including the most wicked crimes that you can think of. He was the hitman for the gang. And after being witnessed to for multiple times, he started coming to church. And one night after a service in the choir room, he trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. When he realized that God loved him in spite of all of his sins. He cried like a baby, and he was gloriously saved. He was born again. Not long after that, I got a call from Dana that his teenage stepdaughter had died, Alicia. She had taken too many pills. She had written a goodbye note to her family and she died. He called me and asked if I would preach the funeral in Norristown. 
As I went to the funeral home, Brother Jeff Ham came along. I mean, the place was packed. It was filled with, with these gang members from this motorcycle gang. It was filled with these teenagers from, this, uh, from her public high school. And, and the, it was in North, the place was just packed with people. And as I stood in front of the open casket with this beautiful, blonde, 17-year-old teenage girl, this stepdad with tears coming down his cheeks, he said to me in this crowded room, he said, she said she didn't have any friends. He raised his hands and, and he said, look, look at all these friends. What was she thinking? What was she thinking? Well, that night, more than a dozen of those people committed their life to Christ. Jeff had actually gone to the hospital before she passed. She was in a coma and Dana had asked if he would just share the gospel that maybe she would hear it, and he, he did. He went through the whole gospel, and, and Dana smiled. He said, all of her vital signs went up. That was the only response that she had before she had passed, hoping to the end. There in your notes, faulty thinking leads to faulty feelings. You know, there was another man that night who turned his back on Christ. His name was Peter. He followed the soldiers to the first trial at Caiaphas' house. Some of you have been there. And he stood warming his hands by the fire, and a young lady said, you're with him. And Peter said, I, I, I don't know him. And then a second lady came along a little bit later. Uh, he stood by the fire, and she said, you are one of those followers of that Jesus. And he said, I, I do not know him. I don't know him third person came along and said i recognize your speech you are one of the followers of jesus and peter he raised his voice he cursed he swore he took an oath he said i know not the man as if raising your voice will be more convincing and at that moment what happened the cock crew peter looked through the door and through the doorway Jesus looked at him and their eyes locked. Peter, Peter the man who said, I'll never deny you. Peter, Peter the man who said, he said, uh, I will fight to the end. I'll protect you, Jesus. It was a spiritual train wreck. God's holiness, man's extreme sinfulness. And the Bible says that he went out and he wept bitterly. And in humility, he came back and became the leader of the church. And he preached, and 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. And he opened the door to, the, uh, to the, the Gentiles as well. And God used him in a wonderful way. Guilt from the past, our words, our actions. There's one more reason why we don't feel that we deserve God's love. Uh, we don't deserve it because of our sin and, and our guilt. But then thirdly, a mistaken view of who God is. Unless you study your Bible, you really won't be able to know who God truly is in a personal way. You will miss his love and you will miss his care for you. And so when you, when you look at a quarter, you will see either heads or you'll see tails. You would be mistaken to say, this quarter only has an image of an eagle. Now, it does have an image of an eagle. But if you use the word only, it's not true. The statement's not true. This quarter only has an image of an eagle. 
Well, that's not true because you've got to turn it over, and you'll see the image of President George Washington's head, the father of our country. By the way, you also see the national motto. What does it say? In God we trust. And that has been on our money since 1864, since the Civil War. And so it is with people who, who, who criticize God and they say, God, God is only a God of, of justice and God is only a God of judgment. He's only a God of holiness. If you use the word only, you're not telling the truth. Because if you read the same Bible, God is a God of love. God is a God of compassion. God is a God of mercy. God is a God who is faithful. And look with me here in our text. We see that in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. That's who he is. And in verse 5, and the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. How can we change our feelings about God's love? Well, first of all, we need to believe the truth about God as revealed in the Bible. Not what some some. Someone wrote on a blog on the internet, not, not, not what some other church teaches, or some doctrinal statement, not, not what something that you think, because if, if what you think isn't according to the Bible, then it's simply not true. So the critics about God, the critics about God's church are a dime a dozen. Don't listen to them. Paul asked these Christians to pray for him. Why? So that they could be delivered from those who criticize Christ and his followers and his church. Look at verse 1. Brethren, pray for us. Why? That the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Because there is opposition. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith. Believe the truth about God. The only way that you can do that is to become saved, to become born again. And so that is to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. As many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. So today, if you think you are saved, but you're not sure, if you say, well, I've been baptized, I'm a good person, I do the sacraments, that's, that's a head faith. You need a heart faith. You need a commitment from your head to your heart to believe that Jesus died for you and rose again. And when you ask God to forgive your sins based on what he did for you, then you can be forgiven. And then secondly, to, to learn the truth about God's character. God's love is unconditional. No strings attached. I remember reading it many years ago. Maybe I heard a pastor on the radio. I don't know, but it just stuck with me because it makes so much sense. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. Isn't that a great statement about God's love? There's nothing, it's not performance-based. It's not sacrament-based. It's not baptism-based. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. I mean, he loves you with the perfect love. He loves you with an unconditional love. Here's the good news. Grace is God's kindness, God's favor towards us, even though we don't deserve it. And so we receive God's riches and God's blessings, but there was a cost, and the cost is the cross. It's the life of Jesus suffering and dying, taking our hell when he died upon the cross, his expense. So what is grace? 
the definition is God's unmerited favor to us, God's blessings to us, God's riches come to us. But notice also, at Christ's expense, he paid the penalty. So, so how can we change our feelings about God's love? Well, we need to believe the truth about God. Secondly, here's the hard part, change your thinking, change your feelings. Change your thinking, change your feelings. Most people wake up in the morning, they begin to think about their problems. Uh, in your brain, those problems become circuits or memories that are connected to people, events, and places. Because our brain contains the memory of your past, most people start their day thinking of, of the past, of yesterday, of last week. And each of those memories has an emotion attached to it. And so you begin to, to think about it. The moment you recall the past and you think about that, you're happy. You're sad, you're upset, you're mad, you have pain, and how you think affects how you feel, and that creates your state of being, that creates your attitude. And if you start your day focusing on your problems, you're going to wake up and you're going to feel lousy. It's going to be a lousy day because you're thinking wrong. I mean, you get up, you do the same routine, right? You get up, and you go to the bathroom, and you wash your hair, and you brush your teeth, and you get your breakfast, and you check your, your WhatsApp, and your Instagram, and your text, and then you take a picture of your breakfast or your feed, and you post it so people can see what you're doing, and, and then you go the same way to church or school or work, and, and, and then you have the same emotions. Do you believe that your thoughts affect your feelings? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, let me show you an illustration. I hope you never forget it because it is a truth about yourself. Your thoughts affect your feelings. Fact, faith, feeling. So here's what the illustration means. First presented by Bill Bright. The engine of the train is the fact. The faith is the coal car and the caboose is the feeling. It's a waste of time to try and pull the train with the caboose. There's no power and if you try and run your life based on your feelings, you're going to have problems. This is how life works. You believe, that's faith. You believe, that's faith. You believe something to be true, that's fact. And then it affects how you feel. You feel a certain way because you believe a certain way about different things. Your thinking controls your feelings. When we think the same thoughts, we're going to what? We're going to feel the same way, right? Right? Think of this, think of this. Just because you had a thought doesn't necessarily mean it's true. <laughs> Is that true? Just because you had a thought doesn't mean it's necessarily true. Scientists say we have somewhere between 6,000 and 60,000 thoughts a day. That's a pretty wide range, isn't it? I mean, 6,000 to 60,000 thoughts. I think they're still trying to figure that out, but it's a lot of thoughts. 90% of those thoughts are the same as the day before. 80% of those thoughts are negative. Only 20% are positive. The reason you don't feel God's love is because you're thinking the wrong thoughts about God. Change your thinking. Change your feelings. Watch how this happens. How many of you can remember Three Mile Island? Would you raise your hand? Okay, maybe about half of you in here. It's in 1979. Uh, it's called Three Mile Island, not because the island is three miles. It's, 
It's three miles south of Middletown. I used to live in Middletown. So, it's, so what happened is reactor number two had a partial meltdown in 1979. Uh, my brother and I, we were at college in Missouri. I got the phone call that uh, it was on the news, national news, international news. There was a radiation leak. We even had relatives that fled the area, and they didn't return until they were told that it was safe. Okay, so let's just suppose today that an usher comes walking down, gives me a piece of paper with an announcement, and your phones are blowing up, and you get this announcement that the Limerick nuclear power plant has a meltdown, and there is a radiation leak. And right away you think, well, good, we're, we're, we're more than 10 miles as the crow flies from the power plant, so we're good. But as I read the announcement to you, it says, anybody within 25 miles has just been exposed to dangerous levels of radiation and may die. How, how will you feel knowing the fact that there's been a nuclear meltdown? You now believe it. How will you feel? Brother Cooper? Brother Cooper the Younger? How, how will you feel with that news? Not too good. Brother Cooper, the older, the elder. I'm gone soon anyway. Okay. <laughs> what a positive attitude. <laughs> I said, 20% of our thoughts are positive. There you go. <laughs> I'm gone soon. All right. So you see, you, you, the fact that thing is melted down, you believe it. And it's bad news, and so my feeling is worried, fear. Oh, I should have gone to church 25 miles away from the power plant. It should be 12 miles away. All right, let me give, since I planted that thought to alleviate your fears, let me give you another thought. I know several people that have worked at the power plant over many years. Joe Walsh is one of them. Joe Walsh is a member here. And every time I have met someone that has worked at the power plant, I've asked this question. Is it safe? Is it safe? And without, without exception, every single time the people that worked at the nuclear power plant have said to me and have assured me, this power plant is safe. You do not have to worry about a radiation leak. And so now, 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 the fact is, people I know and you know tell us this place is safe. If I believe that, how does that make me feel? Linda, how do you feel with that news? Great. Great. Laura, how do you feel? I'm not sure. You're not sure? Cindy, how about you? You're, you're a doctor. Thumbs up. Okay. So fact, faith, feeling. This is how it works. Faulty thinking leads to faulty feelings. We need to change our thinking to change our feelings. You know, most people spend their life anticipating worst-case scenarios. And so they put their heart and their mind in stress. You know that 2020 was one of the most stressful years of our lives? Isn't that crazy? Never before have we seen such high levels of fear. And if you do that enough times, your body will have a panic attack. You can't even predict it because you have programmed it into your subconscious. 
you have settled into an old way of thinking, a worldly way of thinking. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says we are controlled either by the flesh or by the spirit. That's it. You're controlled by flesh or spirit. Now, the flesh is not just, just the, the, the lustly uh, carnal flesh, but it means earthly, it means worldly, it means the temporary, the temporal. So you're either dominated and controlled by the news and your fears, or you're dominated and you're controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, and He produces a number of things in your life as well. But you get to choose. You get to choose. You get to yield who you want to control you. Do you want to live a new way? Do you want to experience God's love, as Paul said? And look with me again at verse 5. The, let the, it's a benediction. Let the, the, the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. I want you to feel the love of God. I want, to you, I want you to experience God's love. I, I want you to be immersed in God's love. I want the Lord to direct your hearts into his love. How? Here we go. Change your thinking, change your feelings. So begin your day with gratitude. Begin your day with gratitude. Now, you can do this generally and say, okay, okay, uh, uh, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it, and that's good to do, and I do it a lot. That's general. But to be specific, when you wake up in the morning, when you go from unconsciousness to consciousness, begin your day <coughs> by praying to God and thanking God for three blessings from yesterday. So you wake up in the morning, and, and I say, oh, you know, God, God, I want to thank you that at the Wills Seminar yesterday, on Saturday, we had about 55 people out, I want to thank you, God, that I got to see some church members that I have not seen for months. I got to see some church members I haven't seen for a year. Oh, what a joy to be able to catch up with them and see them. God, I want, to, I want to thank you. Yesterday, I got to talk to Pastor Jake Gersimoff there of uh, Independent Baptist Church of Homer, Alaska, one of our missionaries that we've sent out. And, and Pastor Jake told me, he said, four people have been saved in the last two months. We've had some baptisms. Uh, we've had people join the church. He didn't know that he is our missionary of the week in the bulletin. That's just kind of cool how that worked out. He told me how they renovated their little auditorium because they're now running 70 people. They had to take the pews out of the choir loft and bring the platform back and put the pews in the, in the main church. He said, when we start a choir someday, we'll figure it out then. But we need more room. I'm thankful for a church family that supports our missionaries that he can do that and reach people. And then the third thing, I'm thankful that my wife brought me lunch, all right? It's <laughs> getting kind of hungry. I had to work through lunch, and so she stopped by and, and gave me lunch. Begin your day with gratitude. Number two, to meditate on an inspirational verse. Now, <clears throat> if you read your Bible in the morning, that's good. Read until you find something to chew on that day, and then you, you share it. You've heard me say that when I was 16, that I had a Sunday school teacher give me a piece of paper that said, I will read through my Bible in 1976. I did. I didn't have a Bible, so my parents gave me a Bible. And I read the Schofield. I read all the Schofield notes. They're not all true, but the Bible's true. And I read that whole thing, and I learned so much, and God began to direct my life. But when I was 17, the real change happened. I was a bus captain, and I would go out and visit on Saturdays, and, 
and down in Annandale, I went to a Christian bookstore, and I bought this packet, this plastic packet, and you opened it up, and inside were eight little packets, and in each packet were about uh, five or six cards, Bible memory verse cards. And I began to, to memorize these verses, and, and I'd, I'd put them in different places. And as I did that, I began to, to meditate upon what God was teaching through those, those memory verses. You know, there's one verse in the Bible that has the word success. Do you know what the reference is? Joshua 1, verse 8. If you will read and believe and meditate upon the word of God, you will have good, what? Good success. Only place in the Bible you find the word success. And I really believe that, that, that that's what happened to me. So I ask you, get a verse, write it down, put it on your phone, put it on a card, a piece of paper, put it on your dresser, put it on the bathroom mirror, put it on the refrigerator, say it out loud, share it with other people. Let it capture your thoughts. You don't need to be thinking worst-case scenarios. You need to be thinking what God says. You need to believe what God says. And then number three, surrender to God's ways. As you say no to sin and you say yes to God, you begin to yield to God's leading in your life. Did you know that God commands us to have certain emotions? Say, so how do you do that? Can God command us to feel a certain way? He does. He does. So if right thinking leads to right feelings, and he commands us for right thinking, doesn't he? Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are just and pure and lovely and holy, whatsoever things are of a good report and virtue, think on these things. What's going to happen is, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. God tells you to be happy. God tells you to rejoice. That's an emotion, right? Joy, happiness is an emotion. God commands it. God commands love. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. He's commanding us. The action and emotion of love, gratitude, and everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. If you begin your day, just try it. Try it for a week. You get up in the day, you, you thank God for three specific things from the day before. You begin to be grateful. You know how you're going to feel? You're going to feel good. You're going to feel grateful, thankful, fulfilled, joyful, peace. In me, you might have peace. Be of good cheer, John 16, 33. Zeal, God tells you to get excited about being alive. Zeal, the, the Bible says the, the zeal has eaten him up. Jesus Christ, as he cleansed the temple, whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Get excited about being alive. The Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Feel the love of God. Experience the love of God. Let the love of God dominate your thoughts and your actions. Are you enjoying God's love today? Boy, I hope you are. God's love can be a hard thing to accept sometimes, mostly because we're not thinking God's way. What do you do in those times when you just don't feel worthy? 
you trust God's truth and not your feelings. Trust God's truth and not your feelings. God loves you even when you don't feel it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful blessing that we can have to experience your love by what we believe, what we choose to think about, how we live. Lord, I pray right now if there be one that they're just not sure that heaven's their home. They've wandered away from you. God, I pray, I pray that you would touch hearts. Bring them to yourself today. Heads about, eyes are closed. No one looking around as we show respect to our neighbor. You say, Pastor, if I died today, I would go to heaven, and I have assurance because I have been born again. I have a Bible reason that I know that I'm saved. I am a committed follower of Jesus Christ, and there is, there is some fruit and evidence in my life to show it. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If that's your testimony, that you are a follower, a committed follower of Christ, would you simply raise your hand all over this congregation? God bless you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. You'd say, Pastor, I, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I'd go to heaven, but I'm just not sure. I've got doubts. I've got doubts. Today, God is inviting you to become part of his family. It's not getting baptized. It's not joining the church. It's a personal relationship with the God who loves you. Now, if you sense a, a tug in your heart, I invite you to, to receive Christ as your Savior. You say, how do I do that? Well, the Bible says we have to acknowledge that we are sinners and can't go to heaven with our sin, but we believe and accept that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for us, that He rose again, that He paid the penalty of our hell so we can go to heaven. And if you will believe and trust in that, you can be forgiven. And so right now, right now I invite you to pray with me, whether you be in this Family Life Center, whether you be watching online, that the Spirit of God is pulling at your heart. Pray with me. Call upon the Lord. Pray with me now. From your heart, dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Please make me a child of God. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you just pray with me and meant it, may I say to you, welcome to the family of God. I want to pray for you this morning. Would you simply just raise your hand for a moment, anyone at all? Just hold it up high. Pastor, I just prayed with you, and I meant it. Anyone at all, just hold your hand up high for a moment. I pray with you, and I meant it. Anyone at home, if you've prayed with me, please contact us this week. Father, I pray now for each Christian. I pray that we would go beyond knowing about the love of God. We would begin to experience it, begin to feel it, begin to let the love of God into our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.